Let's see. Did you notice the sin by the coffee this morning? Anyone? Yeah? Okay. Now, judging by how full it is, nobody took it. Nobody drank any of this. It was right next to the coffee. You could have had some. Why, why did you not drink out of this, pour out of this, um, this jug here? Probably partly because you just, you wanted coffee. And, um, but, but maybe why else would it be a bad idea to drink out of here? What's that? It looks dangerous, right? So it's marked poison. Good life lesson. If you get nothing else out of this morning is don't drink anything marked poison. It's a bad thing. It's not good for you. Um, it's a bad situation. And uh, yeah, I just had to send it back there, obviously, because, well, just to catch your attention. And clearly, as an example of something that you wouldn't want to want to drink. And by the way, Bob is walking around. If you want to use a pen for taking any notes this morning, he's going to hand those to you. Now, there's some things in life that are clearly marked this way, and it's nice that they are. It makes it easier to identify, okay, that's not good for me. I should stay away from it. But sometimes there are things in life that are actually really destructive to us, and unfortunately, they're not marked so clearly. You know, I was actually reminded of that this last week. We were, um, in, in my family, we were reading one of the books that's related to the Little House on the Prairie series with like, well, my little girl. She loves like Laura Ingalls Wilder. And this is Rose, like the daughter of Laura. Um, and they were talking about this great new technology that they had, these asbestos mats that they were picking up and carrying all over, right? And we came to find out years later that asbestos is terribly poisonous, right? And terribly bad for people. It just at the time, people just thought it was great. And they had no idea how destructive this, this thing was. And it makes you wonder how many things in life are actually really destructive and dangerous and we just, we just don't even know. They're not clearly marked like this. And so we're just drinking the poison without even realizing it. Well, today's lesson is going to tune us into one of the most destructive, poisonous things that's out there. And we're going to take some time to look at how we spot it and then look to the solution to it. So today's lesson is going to encourage us, don't drink the poison. Instead, embrace, embrace the life God gives you. The lesson we have is 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 to 2. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. Now with this series, we've been moving ahead through the account of, and of God and his people, the people that he chose, and the Old Testament is really focused around these people he chose to be the ones that he would bring the Savior of the world through, that he would bring blessing to the whole world through these people, and he would redeem the world through these people. Last week, we had that really interesting account of how the kingdom is really becoming established, David has become the king of God's people and he's building that kingdom and, and they're getting the buildings built, uniting the people. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And remember the Ark of the Covenant is that like box of like God's presence and his holiness. It's really compact. It's really centralized there. God is present everywhere. But this is the box that would be in the center of the most holy place. It'd be like that ultra hot spot of the presence of God. Well, it was being carried on a cart behind some oxen. An oxen trips and stumbles, a man reaches out his hand to steady it, and he dies on the spot. Which at first seems like, wait, what? Like, I just, he's trying to help, right? But one of the things that you find out when you really dig into that is that there was actually a major flaw in this to begin with. God had actually given his people clear directions on, on how to move the cart. 
that, that it was actually built with holes in it to put poles through and that they could carry the cart, and this is how they were to do it. David was upset at this in our lesson last week. David was sad and he was scared and didn't want to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem because he saw just how dangerous it could be. But later he realized, oh, we weren't listening to God. We just did it our own way. They didn't look for God in his direction. Instead of, of respecting God's gift of the Ark of the Covenant, they were just handling it their own way. And that's what's so dangerous. So eventually, David does have them actually bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he has them bring it into the Jerusalem ultimately because the Ark of the, Co- of the Covenant is a blessing. God's, the things that make God dangerous, his holiness, his power, those things about God, those things aren't bad. They're actually so good, and God wants to bless you with those good things. And the good news of Jesus is that we can receive God's holiness, his power, through, through faith in him. And so last week, we're at this account now where David brings, brings that into the city. And now things are going pretty well overall for the nation of Israel. David is leading them to conquer these different nations. They're becoming stronger and more powerful. And he's really becoming established as king. Things are going well. And it's here that we get to this lesson. This lesson where we see the enemy working against God's people and where we get this encouragement, don't drink the poison. So our lesson begins, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So our lesson clues us in that there's something going on. Like if you could could open up the little view to the spiritual world, there's something going on in the background here. And what's going on is actually that Satan is at work. Now, when you see the word Satan, always keep in mind that that word means enemy. Often we use it just as like a proper name. Like, well, that's Satan. That's his name. But it really means enemy. And actually most of the time in scripture when it shows up, it actually has the, the, the article in front of it. So it literally says the enemy. So most of the time it doesn't just refer to him like a proper name. It doesn't say, well, that's Satan. It says the Satan, the enemy. This is actually one of the few examples where it does just say Satan. So here it uses a bit more like a proper name. But usually when you see it in scripture, it's the enemy. So when you see Satan there, keep that in mind. That word indicates the enemy is here. The enemy is working. And what does an enemy do? An enemy fights against you, battles against you. So the enemy here is battling against Israel by battling against David. Now, I'm thankful that our lesson points this out and brings this out. Often in scripture, it doesn't, like sometimes scripture will will take you through an account and it doesn't spell out what's happening here is bad. It kind of leaves it up to you to meditate on it and kind of figure it out as you look at how the story goes. This is one of those times where it's very clear. Satan's up to something. I'm thankful that it's there because when you look at what David does, I don't know, at first glance, doesn't look like anything major at all, right? He says, take a census, go and count the Israelites. Is a census inherently bad? No. If you read through, if you've been working through the Old Testament, like that part where you tend to get stuck is either, when you kind of slow down in your reading, is usually either like the book of Numbers or Leviticus. (laughs) Those are kind of, those things kind of tend to slow people down. Why? Because in Numbers, it's like, it's census numbers. There's this many people in this tribe and this many people in this tribe and this many people come here and this many people come. It's not what the whole book is. 
Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in the book of Numbers, but there's sections where there's a lot of numbers. And so clearly it's not bad to have a number of God's people. So just reading through this, if it said David took a census, my first take from this would be, okay. I wouldn't even be tuned in at all to anything bad going on necessarily. But while I might not be tuned into it, and maybe you're not tuned in or wouldn't be tuned into it, there was something going on here that actually Joab, like the military commander, did pick up on. Because if you were to read the verse that comes after a sermon lesson, Joab replied to David, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Now just a quick note here as you're reading for this because it can get a bit confusing. You notice the word Lord shows up a few times. One time it's in all caps, the other times it's not, okay? So when you see it in all caps, that's actually a way of referring to the proper name of God, Yahweh. So that's why when it says may the Lord, so basically may Yahweh, so that's clearly referring to God. The other times when it's in lowercase, that's just the regular name for like a master or a leader, so my Lord. So that's that difference there. But here Joab notices, he recognizes, something's up with this request. This is not good. Don't bring guilt on Israel. Stop what you're doing, king. And sure enough, when David goes ahead and, and does it and has them do this count, it turns deadly. David ends up saying to God, I've sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. If you were to read through the rest of this chapter, you would find that actually as a result of this, God says, okay, consequence, a lot of people are actually going to lose their lives Thousands of people die as a result of David taking this census. Which is one of those things when you look at it, whenever we see like something like that happen, it can look so abrupt. Like, God, why is that's a really abrupt response? He takes a census and thousands of people in Israel die. What's going on? But whenever that happens, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. Is first of all, when we see something that seems abrupt or seems unjust, that we need to make sure to, to not just dismiss it and be like, okay, it's God, whatever. We should lean into it, but lean into it in a way where we are asking the question with an open humility, realizing that there's some perspective that I apparently need here. And so what's some of the perspective? Here, here's one of the things to keep in mind is, is God is the one who gives life, and as the giver of life, he is the one who ultimately has the right to decide when life ends. And that's what he does for everybody, right? Your days are numbered. He decides when your last day of this life is. And so for God to say, okay, for a bunch of people to have their last day at the same time is really God, he's just, he's doing the same thing he always does just then. Okay, so that's, that's really, it's really not outside of God's. It's like Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In the name of the Lord be praised. He has every right to do so. There's also the reality is just because they lost their, this life doesn't mean that those people weren't believers and didn't enter immediately into paradise with God, right? Many of those people probably went right to heaven. And the hardest part of death in a Christian setting is for the person who is still here in this life, not for the person who went to heaven, right? Um, but there's also, there's another perspective here. And the other perspective comes in when we, really meditate on what is it that happens here and why is this so significant 
Remember, the enemy here is working in this event. What does the enemy do here with David? Is it something that we've seen the enemy do before? Go back again to the beginning, and we do. We go back to the beginning so many times, but I've said it before. I'll say it time and time again. The more you hold Genesis 1 to 3 in your mind, so many accounts from Scripture make so much more sense. So when you go back to the garden, and they're there, and we're at that point where things are good between God and humanity. They're in that good, good garden. God said, I'm going to give you all these trees to eat from. You can eat from the tree of life. God provides everything they need. There was just one tree there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't eat from that one. And it was an opportunity for them to trust God as their source of life. But what happens? The enemy appears in the form of a serpent and gets them to question whether God is good, whether they can trust God. And then we're told that the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the enemy got Eve to look at the tree and see, well, that looks good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. That looks good. None of those things are bad. Keep that in mind. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, wisdom are good things. But the enemy got them to take them for themselves rather than trust God to provide. Eve acted on what looked good to her own eyes rather than trusting God to give it to her. Adam was right there with her and went along with trusting what looked good in their own eyes rather than trusting God. That was at the core of the sin, the event that broke this world. Because afterwards, Adam and Eve now are full of guilt and shame. They don't trust God. When God comes to them, they hide from God. They have issues with each other pain and suffering come in this world because now they're separated from the one who gives life. Everything breaks as a result of this. Now, if that's how it broke at the beginning, and that's what the enemy did at the beginning, was get them to rely on what they could see rather than trusting God to provide. And that's what brought all the brokenness and death we have in this world. What do we see the enemy doing here in this lesson? This is not an innocent, all right, that we should probably just know how many people there are in Israel. David, apparently, was looking to see, okay, how big have we become? How does this look? Do we look good? Do we look like we have enough? Do we look like we are strong enough to move forward the agenda, the kingdom of God? Or do we look like we've got a ways to go? How does it look? Where are we at? Do you see the shift? You wouldn't necessarily even, it's not on the surface necessarily, but apparently there was an attitude here. Let's just see how big and strong we've become. Things are going good. Let's look at our progress. Let's see how big and strong we've become. Let's see what we can do. That same shift is what broke the world to begin with. And for David, Israel's king, the leader of his people, to have that same attitude. It's so subtle, but it change, It breaks everything when you trust on what your own eyes can see rather than trusting God to provide. It's the pride. It's the poison. That's why the result of it for Israel was death. Because ultimately, when we live trusting in what our own eyes can see 
rather than trusting God to provide, we have distanced ourselves from the author, the source of life and the result. If you walk away from life, what do you do? You drink poison and you walk towards death. And all of us naturally, that's, that's how we are. That's how we are naturally. We don't trust God always to provide. Naturally, we, we, we drink the poison of trusting what our own eyes can see, which is why the result is not just physical death, but also spiritual death of being separated from God for eternity. And the enemy, he did that there with Israel. He did it there in the garden, and he keeps working this way today, trying to get people to drink the poison. We saw an example of it in our lesson, in our gospel lesson. Right, you've got Peter, who becomes this great, great leader in the church. And what does Jesus call him in this account? He said, get behind me, Satan. Because when Jesus was saying, this is how, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay down my life and die on the cross. That's how I'm going to rescue you. Peter said, no, that doesn't look right. That doesn't look strong. That doesn't look like well, how it should look. And what, what, who was behind those words? The enemy doing what the enemy does. So how does the enemy do it with us? You know, like with any, any illness, it's good to look at your symptoms, right? The symptoms can help clue us into what's going on. And now if you're a note taker, this is the time to get your pen out. Or maybe you've already been using it, but this is especially a time. And for us to think about, to think about some of the symptoms of pride, when you especially want to think about this, this, these symptoms, the symptoms of pride, the symptoms of the poison, because it is, it can be so subtle. So what are some of these symptoms? Just start with this first one here, focusing on what you have and what you can do. And I'm just going to pause there for a minute. And, and maybe I even should have put it down like an over, maybe a preoccupation with those things. Have you ever had it where, where you just, you, are, you check something to make sure it's okay? And then you check it again five minutes later, even though there's no possible reason it should have changed in five minutes, but you did it anyway. And then you check it again, and then you check it again, and then you check it again. Ever done that? It's preoccupation with something where you're, you're, you're counting. You're just going back to it. Do I, have Do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? You can think of that in a general sense, but there's some specific ways too, especially. So a, a, a focusing on what you have or a preoccupation with what you have or can do that results maybe in boastfulness or pride. So if you start to feel really good about your life because of something you've done or accumulated. All right, I have this much in my account. Now life is good. I'm okay. I've accomplished this. I've reached this point. Now I can feel good about things. Where you're putting your security in your stuff or what you're able to accomplish. The inverse is also the case. It's also the same thing. Like where if you don't have enough, where you're like if you're looking, I'm like my account is too empty. Right? If you, I'm, I don't, I'm not making enough. There's no way I'm going to be okay. If you're down in yourself because you don't have enough resources or you're down in yourself because you don't think you're strong enough to make it happen, to make it work. Where in that situation are you putting your trust to? It's in yourself, just as much as the person who's boastful. It's just that you're putting it, you're, you're worrying about your lack of ability as opposed to being proud of your abundance of ability. 
This can be the case in things that you have now, but also as you think about the future. Like, all right, how do you feel about what's ahead of you? All right, I'm going to be good. You know, I got this. I'm good. I, I, I will be able to do well enough. Do you put your, your confidence for the future in what you can do? Or are you freaking out about the future? Because you don't think you're wise enough to make it happen. You don't think you have the ability to make it happen. You don't know how you're going to be able to do it. But who is at the center of that again? It, it's, it's you and your ability. Okay, I don't, it, does, it looks like I've got it or it looks like I don't. Either way, it's all about what it looks like to you. And this can show up in so many variety of ways. Like I mentioned like resources, things you have in your account and so on, but even just like your personal abilities. And it can be in the things that you do in life, but even just how you have your faith. You know, I've shared many times, I'm very open with the fact that, that I have, a, have had a few seasons of significant doubt in my, in my life, my, of doubting my faith naturally. As, even though I'm a pastor, I'm naturally a doubter. I ask a lot of questions, and I share that frequently so that you can be reminded that if you have a season like that, you're not the only one. Also, so that you can know that if you have questions, you're struggling, I get it. Talk to me. I would love, God has taught me so much through those seasons. And one of the things as I look back that he taught me, and part of the reason why those, those seasons have been a blessing is because I realized that before my first real significant season of doubt, I was where David was. And this, this is what I mean. I was, in high school, really, really good at talking about my faith. Like there was a time um, where I was in sophomore year history class. Teacher gets up front, he's like, we're not gonna talk about religion in this class, but I just want you all to know that I believe that there's no such thing as, as, as hell and there's just one God. Everybody believes the same thing and everybody's going to heaven. And I raised my hand and I said, you're wrong. <laughs> and I debated the teacher. He called in the principal because he couldn't win. And the principal tried to talk me down and we just ended in a draw because the bell rang and we were still back and forth, right? And afterwards, I had all these other students coming up and like asking me questions and I was answering all their questions. And so I was feeling really confident. But what I didn't realize was that my confidence was in how quick I was at responding and how I could out-logic people. You know, my confidence was in me. So then I actually, actually, after my junior year of high school, I was sent, my school picked me as a representative to go to this world conference that was held actually at UW-Whitewater. We took a, they sent us in a, in a little six-seater airplane from northern Iowa to Madison and then to UW-Whitewater. And... I learned a number of things on that trip, namely don't eat tuna helper before you ride in a six-seater airplane. It's a bad idea. Um, but also, I got to UW-Whitewater, and I'm sitting in this, this seminar, and I'm hearing people speak stuff that was so against what I believed, but the problem was I could tell they were smarter than me, and they had done research that I had not done, and I did not know how to answer them, and I panicked. Like, because I've been able to answer everybody Right? I could battle down the principal and here this this guy up on the stage and he's saying this stuff and there's like a thousand other teenagers cheering him on and I'm sitting in there in this auditorium going, how do I compete with this? And what was going on and what led to that season of doubt was I was trusting my own ability. And one of the biggest blessings that God has taught me through those seasons is how to be okay not knowing it all and not being able to figure it all out and being okay, letting go and saying, okay, God, I don't get it. You're going to have to show me your own way in your own time. And, and then part of the beauty that comes as a result is that 
that maybe God will, and a number of times God has showed me that my question was too small for the big answer he wanted to give me. You know, there's certain things that you can't really get in your head, but you get in your heart. Like, there's so much. I could go on for a while. But my point is, there are these times where you're actually, you're doing good things, but you're actually depending on how it looks to you, your own strength. And sometimes it's actually a blessing to have God. It was for me, for God to kind of pull the rug out from underneath me so that I had to stop depending on myself. All right. Uh, some other things too. Looking for shortcuts to good things. This kind of comes out of the, the account with Adam and Eve in the garden. Wisdom, that's good. Things that are good for food, pleasing the eye, good. But they didn't trust God to provide it. They just grabbed what was in front of them. Sometimes there are things in life that are not bad, but it's not the way God provided for us. God offered it to us, right? There are certain things that God has provided, relationships, things in life that are good things. They never were bad things. But God says, here's how I want to give it to you. And what the enemy will get us to do sometimes is just to take it our own way. Sometimes there'll be a lack of looking to God for direction. Sometimes that can be a sign of the pride where you make your plan for how life, how you want to do things, and then ask God, you pray to God to make your plan work. Right? And even then, I guess that doesn't necessarily have to be pride there, but how often do we, okay, this is what I want, or even in your prayer, does your prayer turn into, oh, God, this is how I want, this is how I think you should fix this. Amen. And kind of with that, Anger, frustration, or discouragement when things don't go the way you think they need to go. It's all right to be angered and and frustrated and discouraged, but I'm thinking here about Peter, right? When Jesus says, this is how it's going to work, and Peter says, no way! It can't work that way. Right? Like, how many times in life do we look and we're like, God says, okay, I'm going to work it out this way. And you're like, no, not a chance, God. This is blowing it. This is not helping. This is not good. (laughs) And in the moment, what would God turn and say to us? What did he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're basing on what your eyes can see. Don't drink that poison. Now, if you find that you have been drinking this poison, there is a solution. There is a remedy. What do you call it? An antidote? I mean, if you've drinking the poison. And it's here. Encourage yourself so to write the word trust in between these pictures in your worship folder. The antidote for pride, when you think about it, is, is when you think of the opposite of pride being like humility. And humility is taking a low place, but when it comes to God, so what's the pathway to humility? It's trust. Because pride is I can do it. Trust is, I'm leaning on him to do it. And you really can trust God to meet you and to heal you from this poison. And there's a really cool detail about this lesson that can help us see that. So if you were to keep reading through this Chronicles account, you would find that there's really a place, there's this threshing floor where David actually sees the angel of the Lord who's like the angel of death who's saying, all right, it's time for all these people to die. And there's this really kind of crazy con- confrontation between God and, and, and David there. And then it's there where, da- where God says, okay, that's enough. I'm gonna, that's enough death. Well, that place 
David ends up buying that place. God says, take and use this place. And that very threshing floor becomes the place where the temple is built. The temple of God that becomes a place of God's presence, that becomes a place of the sacrifices that are given to point ahead to the coming Savior. That's the place that points us ahead to the fact that God would restore his relationship between us and him and give us life with him in a new creation. That temple is built in that very spot where that reached its head, where this event reached its head. God meets you where you've drank the poison and begins to restore you right there. He meets you in the ways that you have focused on your pride and focused on what you can do and dependent on what your own eyes could see instead of trusting him. He meets you there. How? When you recognize that you have drank this poison and that there's nothing you can do to set yourself right with God, so you look to him and you say, Lord, I've drank the poison. I need you to heal me. Right there, you've been emptied of yourself and you can be filled with him. Because there he says, no, you can't do anything to heal yourself from this. But Jesus took the poison onto himself when he went to the cross and died there. All the justice, all the punishment, everything that your sins deserve, Jesus took the poison. That's why he died. The death that should come as a result of this for you, Jesus died. And when you think about Easter, you think about the resurrection, it's the proof that this poison has been left behind for you. Not only do you not have to die in that way, yes, we do have physical death, but there's, this is where it kind of goes on because we might look and say, okay, but we still have physical death, yes. But when you close your eyes to this world, you're going to open them up to be with Jesus. And not only that, but you're looking forward to that day when Jesus returns, your body's raised back from the dead, reunited with your soul, and you're going to stand there in the new heavens and new earth as scripture describes it and have real life in the tomb you find where life comes from it's not from you there's nothing you can do to make that happen comes from him and as you live knowing that your life ultimately now comes from him as you find yourself now trusting him you're at the perfect place to trust God now to provide in everything going forward what do I need today yeah, I can check my bank account and all those things, but I'm going to trust that ultimately it's God who's going to provide for me. I need to be responsible, but this is not my source. He is. You know, I want to try to plan and do what's best, but you know what? My plans are not what I'm depending on. I'm depending on him. Even when it comes to living out my faith, I'm going to, do my, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read, go to that Bible reading plan. I'm going to go to a small group Bible study. I'm going to do these things. But ultimately, where is my source? It's God the Holy Spirit who gives me faith. It's God the Holy Spirit who empowers me. It's God the Holy Spirit who leads me forward. And so who would I depend on? Who would I trust on? It's him. See, for all these things, when we bring it to the cross, which then leads us to the empty tomb, which lets us know that we are right with God and we can trust in him to provide and that we now have the spirit to empower us. There, in trust, we find the antidote for this poison. And if you, if you can trust Jesus that he's paid for your sins, if you can trust that new life is given to you through him, that you can trust God 
to provide everything you need for this life. If you can trust the Spirit to empower you and guide you and lead you forward on into that day where you stand at the resurrection, why would you want to drink the poison of pride, of the anxiety, the fear, the pain, the frustration, the discouragement that comes as a result of pride? Why drink that? Why drink the thing that leads you away from the source of life and leads you to death? Today, look to the cross, look to the resurrection, look to your Father who provides, and look to the Spirit who guides. Don't drink the poison.